Good morning, church family. Good morning online. Please open your Bibles and turn to John 2. I told you we're going faster. We're going to cover 10 verses this morning, unprecedented. John 2, verses 13 to 22. Please read along as I read God's word to you. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Verse 16. And those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he raised, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help our congregation, help the people assembled before you to hear your word, understand your word, apply your word, obey your word. Give us your spirit to enlighten us with the light of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the precious, awaited Christ. And it's in his matchless name we pray. Amen. One question for you to start. Are you zealous for God? That would actually imply that we understand what the word zeal means. So let me back up and make sure I'm very clear in my definition of zeal. Zeal is an eagerness, an ardentness for an interest or a pursuit of something. So are you zealous for God? Am I zealous for God? Yes. Thank you, David. <laughs> Amen. I will actually say, this is not in my manuscript, had the pleasure to see, we had breakfast Thursday together, and watch his zeal for God in handing out Bibles to men and women after the breakfast. And later that morning, one of the Bibles he gave me, I was able to give to somebody else and have a conversation about Christ. Zeal is a pursuit, an eager pursuit of others. Because we love God. So what 
And where does your zeal show up in the choices that you make? Is it evidenced in your affections, in your time, in your money, and in your speech? What causes you to get upset? What causes you to feel offended? Is it an offense against you? Or is it an offense against God? John 2, 13 to 22, Jesus demonstrates a zealous passion for the restoration of the temple of God. He will redefine the temple of God. And finally, we will learn the importance of both hearing and remembering the word of God in relation to belief and for godly living. In your bulletins, and for those online, you can find the bulletins on the bottom left of our website. Uh, The main ideas, you'll notice it's not main idea. I tried, couldn't. Sorry. It's main ideas, but it's there for you. Jeremy and I wrestled together with the first one. Belief in Jesus' authority and divinity is grounded in hearing and remembering the word of God. But we can't stop just there. Jesus' zeal for worship must be carefully considered and faithfully applied in the life of a believer. So let's open God's word and carefully look what it says together before we're ready to take communion together, which Jeremy will lead us through. Verse 13. So you recall, just before this, Jesus had gone down to Capernaum with he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That's a geographic distinction. Up is a literal going up, thousands of feet up. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and this is the first of three Passovers which are recorded in the book of John. John 2.13, 6.4, and 11.55, which then, by the way, this distinction allows us to define the length of the ministry of Jesus, for the other Gospels do not show all three Passovers, but John records them. So we know that Jesus at least ministered for at least three years before his crucifixion and his resurrection. The Passover celebrates and commemorates the Jews, the delivery of slavery, as you probably know, when the angel of death passed over. The Jewish homes were marked by blood of the lamb and sprinkled on the doorposts and the lintel, coming from Exodus 12, 23-27. And during the Passover, the celebration, worshipers of God came from all over the land to the Roman Empire, to Jerusalem, and particularly to the temple. And when Jesus arrives at the temple for the Passover, what he finds results in zealousness for the proper worship of a holy and just God. Jesus was there before. Do you remember when? He was young. Do you remember when his mom was looking for him? And they found him in the temple. Temple. He's back, and he's not happy. Point one, restoring. The temple, for some context, was the location which 
one may offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. People from all over the Roman Empire gathered to Jerusalem for these high festivals. And they brought together many types of coins with them. But the temple tax had to be paid by every conscientious Jewish male, 20 years of age or older. It had to be deposited in the Tyrene coinage because of the high purity of its silver. So what does that mean? It meant if you came from the suburbs and you came from the surrounding towns, guess what you had to do? Change your money into the local currency before you gave your atoning taxation. Foreigners had to exchange their money into the coinage, and the money changers often would convert it at exorbitant rates. It's kind of like modern day, if you really want to go somewhere, and there's a supply and a demand type thing, and they charge a premium. This is a serious premium. In the past, though, before Jesus had come, the money changers and the animal sellers were not in the temple. That's important. But something has changed. The people were required to make animal sacrifices as well. Many people traveled great distances, and to carry your animals with you was not convenient, but it also wasn't accepted. For certain animals had to be of a certain quality, and therefore there was premiums being charged, not just in the money exchange, but in the animal purchases. And naturally, where there's a demand for something and supplies are needed, what happens? It's a small little word, but insidious. Greed. So greed was pervasively showing up, not outside the temple, but inside the house of God. For context, the merchants would include animal dealers who sold animals intended for sacrifice. And depending on your financial ability to buy and money changers, they would convert this highest grade silver while at the same time tucking in their pockets a tidy profit. Both groups exploited the great demand. How do we know that? Matthew 21, 13. Now, for those that know their Bible, Matthew 21 is not near the beginning of Matthew. So the question that I'd like you to wrestle with is this. Did John get it wrong? Did John get it wrong? Jesus here is starting his public ministry and showing up at the temple, enraged, zealous for God, and yet the other three gospels all place this apparent account at the end. So did he get it wrong? And I believe the answer is no. There's no contradiction between the Gospels at all. We know that every word is from God. It is inerrant, infallible. Therefore, how do we reconcile these two events? I think I just told you. They're two events. I believe that just like in modern day where there is profit to be made and greed may be found, it doesn't go away quickly. And so Jesus' start of the ministry at the first Passover, he shows up at the temple and he is zealous. But just because he's going to do some cleansing here doesn't mean that it is not going to find its way back. 
historical circumstances, literary context differ so widely that the attempts to harmonize these two accounts, I think, are errant and unsuccessful. One constant between these two events is the reaction by Jesus, which at first glance seems shocking in relation to the other accounts, yet on deeper reflection, it is so common for the Lord to show his zeal for righteousness and holiness. Do you remember what he called the religious leaders? Do you remember? Brood of vipers. Jesus gets jealous for the righteousness of God. When God's holiness is defamed, Jesus is enraged. That's called righteous anger. By the way, we don't have righteous anger the way Jesus displays it, do we? For we have sin in our hearts even if we are saved by grace. But Jesus here is zealous for the holiness of God and he demonstrates this righteous anger. He's not angry because of persecution against him. He's not zealous because people were saying mean things to him or persecuting him, but he walks in and sees his father's house turning into a den of thieves and he is not a happy man. Jesus is not mildly perturbed, but he has a righteous anger, a sovereign zeal, which is manifested, which means made known by what he does and what he's going to say. Verse 14, Jesus enters into the temple and he finds in the temple those who are selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Implication. This isn't like a a drive-by. They have permanent booths. They're seated. And they're selling. And when Jesus saw what it's being used for, he was outraged as evidenced in verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. Wow. With the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. R.C. Sproul, in his book on John, which was released after he passed, says this. Prior to this time, the booths for sale of animals and exchanging of the money had been set up across the Kidron Valley, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, which is significantly removed from the temple complex. But by Jesus' time, the outer court, which is the court of the Gentiles, had been transformed from a place of worship and prayer to a place of commerce, which was inappropriate for these legitimate activities and incensed Jesus. The language that Jesus uses here in verse 16 to follow is one of the strongest demands possible. Look to verse 16 with me. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop 
making my father's house a place of business. The making comes from the Greek word poieo. It's not a request. It's an imperatival, active, present tense demand. It is saying, get out of here. This is not what my father's house is for. It's not a future tense. It's a present tense. He is zealous for reverent worship, and he would not tolerate those who were abusing for their gain. The issue is not the exorbitant prices being charged, but rather the sale location that's taking place. It's not simply a zeal for the temple which motivates Jesus. It was the zeal for the activity that the temple was intended to accommodate, which is the worship of God. His disciples remembered in verse 17. Now, remembered has a past tense. I know that's obvious to you. It's not clear if they remembered then or post his resurrection. There's different camps in this one, and I don't know the answer. So in verse 17, it is past tense for sure. Zeal for your house will consume you. What is certain is where that comes from, Old Testament. To be exact, Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In the original context, this was David crying out in despair because those who opposed him, David's zeal for God's house caused him problems with his enemies. But now, one greater than David experiences the same response. The promised Messiah has come as the son of David who is greater than David. And Jesus is coming into the temple with reverence and quietness expected by those around him. And there were sounds of loud and persistent bleating of sheep and goats. Instead of coming into the temple with reverence and quietness, there were sounds of coins and monies being changed in the, te- in the temple. How dare you turn my father's house into a place of business? D.A. Carson adds, instead of the brokenness and contrition, holy adoration, prolonged petition, there's a noisy commerce. You know the sound of commerce? You've been in a marketplace, hearing animals, hearing money, seeing exchange. That's what's going on in the temple. Jesus' physical action, listen to this, was forceful but not cruel. For one does not easily drive out cattle and sheep without a whip of cords. Have you thought of that? How do you get them out of here? We have enough trouble getting our dog to go outside. (laughs) The Roman troops are in a fortress of Antonia, which overlooks this part of the temple complex. And they're not mentioned once as intervening at all. Therefore, while a definitive action by Jesus, it must not have caused a massive uproar, or there would have been a swift reprival by the Romans. And we don't see any of that. Jesus cleanses the temple and testifying of his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the focus point of the relationship between God and man, the temple. A caution for us today as believers. I'll speak to believers. 
We should not be a people who are easy to anger and understand that righteous anger is very, very, very rare. James 1, 19 to 20. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Righteous anger and indignation were appropriate for Jesus as he was defending the holy righteousness of God. The offenses were not how he felt hurt and responded to, but rather for the defamation of the most sacred location, which was the location where God was to be worshipped uniquely and sacrificially for the atonement of sins. And he was indignant, not personally, but for the defamation of the holiness of God. Is that what angers us? Or are we offended because of how people treat us? Now, with the presence of Jesus, there will be a redefinition of the temple. Point two. What is Jesus' response, or the Jews' response, excuse me, to Jesus' fury? Look to verse 18. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Here we go. Sign seekers. Now, the amazing thing is, John tells us the purpose of the book of John is what? All these things were written and the signs that were performed so that, purpose statement, you will believe and have life in his name. Signs are not wrong to seek, but they're not seeking them for belief. They're seeking them as a distraction. This is a ploy. This is a trick. They want to move it and put his holy, righteous anger and question his authority. It's exactly what's happening. There was another time when they asked for a sign. Do you remember? Matthew 12, 38 to 39. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Why is it evil and adulterous for them to seek for a sign from Jesus? Because when they ask for a sign, it's a dodge, it's a trick, it's a ploy, and it's not real. If he does it, they won't believe. Jesus knows the heart. Jeremy's going to talk to this next week. They do not need more signs to prove what's true. What they need is faith. Jesus' answer is so ironic as the Jews themselves would be the means to bring about the most significant sign of all. Look to God's word. Jesus answered in verse 19, and he says, destroy this temple, his body, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus actually is going to instruct them, you're going to kill me, but I'm going to resurrect myself. That's what just happened right here. And he is telling them, by the way, you want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign, but you're still not going to believe. How disappointing. How heartbreaking. They're trying to turn a problem of greed into a problem of authority. And he knows the heart of man. By deflecting the issue onto his authority, then the light won't shine so bright on their covetousness. But what does Jesus mean? 
and in three days I will raise it up? Two levels. First, I will raise up my body by the resurrection after three days. Remember what it says in John 10, 17 to 18? Listen to God's word. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord and I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. And he says, he lays it down for our sin. He takes it up again. When they destroy it, he builds it up again in three days. Second part, the material temple that would be destroyed in his body. Jesus, again, in three days, in the sense that he now replaces this temple and he becomes the new place where everyone may meet God and fellowship with God. Remember what it says in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is now redefining You used to have to come here. You used to have to kill annually, but I am now here. They would not understand this till later. The implication of verse 19 is that they would destroy, but he would raise up. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well, John 4, 21 to 23. Flip with me there for a second. John 4, 21 to 23. Jesus said, to her. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. In other words, authentic worship will not be attached to Jerusalem or any other place. It'll be in spirit and in truth, and it is now attached to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the new temple. He's standing in the physical temple, but he is the new temple. And when I raise my body from the dead, everywhere in all the world, people may come to God through me. There'll be no more pilgrimage needed to Jerusalem, but a pilgrimage from the lost, darkened hearts to the light that comes through faith only in Christ. The Jews understood Jesus was speaking about this literal temple. But John clarifies for his readers that Jesus was instead speaking about his own body. The disciples would not understand this, though, until Jesus died. Final point. Then they remembered The words which Jesus had spoken to them, point three, remembering. And go back with verse 17 for for a second with me. His disciples remembered. Fast forward to verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. The first remembrance, you'll remember, quotes back to the Old Testament. This point is so significant. I want you to pay careful attention to. He goes back to the Old Testament and says in Psalm 69, 9, it was written, zeal for your father's house, which meant 
the Hebrew Bible, which meant scriptures, which meant authoritative word of God. But in verse 22, something happens that's astounding. Look carefully to God's word. In fact, it's so easy to miss it unless you pay careful attention. So when he was raised from, his, from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed. What just happened is Jesus' words post-mortem, post-resurrection are now being accounted as scripture. Do you see that small detail? It is so significant. Do you remember when Paul writes a letter and it circulates and they read the letter and they say that this is to be written? Do you remember that in the Bible? And the Bible was being written real time by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What you're now seeing is the words of Jesus are being accounted as God's word. Hugely important. They remembered. It's a reflection back in both instances. In both instances, they they reference God's word. One is in written form. One is in verbal form to be codified, to be written down, which is John's gospel, and in fact recorded in others. The disciples reflect back twice. The point is simply this. The disciples accounted the words for Jesus as authoritative What were the Jews questioning? By what authority? By the word of God. Jesus' own words are now put on par with the Bible as the very words of God, which indeed they are. So his disciples remember that it was said and they believed. What's the purpose statement of the book of John? These things were written and recorded so that you will believe. And by believing, you will have life in his name, life eternal. Not every word of Jesus was recorded. Not every sign of Jesus was recorded. We know that. The Bible tells us that. But these were written so that you may believe and believe by believing have eternal life. So belief in Jesus' authority and divinity is grounded in hearing and remembering the word of God. The Jews want a sign. The greatest sign of all time was upcoming in the resurrection from the dead. The people would tear down his body, kill him, but he, Jesus, would raise it up in three days, exactly as he predicted. The temple in Jerusalem was no longer where God would dwell, for God had come down to be with man. That's the Christmas story we're going to celebrate. December 24th, a new poster is coming this week, thanks to Chip and others and great work that's happening. And it will have one verse. It was the verse that we had for two months here. And it was John 1.14, which simply states this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came not to live, but to die. And here he is in the temple where a sacrificial system is going to be replaced. And when he dies and he raises, they remember his words and they believe. That's the point. The scriptures have been expanded as well beyond the Old Testament. 
And they affirm this. And Jesus records this. Simple, profound. So how do we respond? Three ways. Transforming belief, for those that take notes. Transforming belief, growing knowledge, and revering worship. The first one has two parts. Belief in the divine identity of Jesus and belief in the resurrection of Jesus. If you're not a believer, that means you're in darkness. That means sin is dominating your life. You are living for self. Your God is effectually yourself. From disbelief to belief by the grace of God. The Bible tells us that repentant man, woman, boy, girl, realizing their sinful, selfish ways and placing faith in God through Christ for salvation in the finished work of his completed work through the cross, through his death, through his sacrifice, is the means, not a means, for a reorientation of a life to live for Christ and to live for Jesus as their new Lord. That's called salvation. Transforming belief, second part for believers. Paul wrote, we, these are all believers, beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree to the other, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And if we would be changed into Christ's likeness, then we must steadily see him. This happens in the world. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Bible memorization has the effect of making on our gaze Jesus steadier and clearer. Are you memorizing the Bible? Not the whole Bible, parts of the Bible. Is it a regular discipline in your life and of mine? Why does that matter? Second point under here, growing knowledge. Where does your knowledge come from? If it's not this, what is it that's grounding you? I was watching a DVD last night, which I know for the younger people, you think, oh my goodness, they still have a DVD player. <laughs> last night, and partway through the video, there was somebody that was being persecuted today, but they had preached many, many, many years ago, and their words were consistent. And the comment that came from one of the people that knew them well is they said, yes, they were consistent because the source was unchanging, which was here. It was not their words. It was this word. Therefore, they could stand. And as time went on, they can look back and see the steadiness and the assuredness and the firmness because it came from the unchanging word of God. How can a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I've stored it up in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119, 9 and 11. Jesus was tempted by Satan. Remember? In the wilderness, what did he do? He recites scripture from memory and puts Satan to flight. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Proverbs 25, verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like an apples of gold in a setting of silver. Isn't that beautiful? That is a beautiful way of saying this. When the heart full of God's love can draw on the mind full of God's word, timely blessings flow out of the mouth. Opportunities to share the gospel come from when, when sometimes we don't have this Bible 
in our hands. You ever been there? You wish. Oh my goodness, I think I've got it. I kind of remember what to say, but what do I say? So here's my exhortation and challenge. It comes from John Piper. We should all be able to sum up the gospel in four headings. John says this, God's holiness or glory, which we've talked a lot about this morning, man's sin, rebellion, disobedience, Christ's death for sinners, and the gift of life by faith. And Piper adds, learn a verse or two relating to each of these. So let me go through them again. God's holiness and glory, man's sin, rebellion, disobedience. Christ's death for sinners and the gift of life by faith. Learn a verse or two, Piper says, that relate to each of these and be ready in season and out of season to share them. Boy, that's good advice. Last point. Revering worship under here. I started by asking you a question. Are we zealous in our worship for God? Are we zealous for God? Remember, it was not a zeal for the temple which motivated Jesus, but a zeal for the worship of God. How and when are we ready to worship at church on Sundays? How and when? If we come in late or just in time, there's many times I come to preach where it's half full and then it becomes more than half full by God's grace. Let's show up earlier. Why? Have you ever been there where you're rushing to church? I've been there. Maybe you hit a bunch of red lights. Maybe you show up and the announcements already happened and worship's already happening. How's your heart doing for worship at that point? How's your mind at that point? Are you busy? Are things dominating? Maybe concerns from the morning. You have kids, they're young. Maybe you've had a fight on the way in as a couple. Why do I, R.C. Sproul, before he died, what he instituted at his church, I heard one day and I thought, oh, there's genius in this. He would have people fellowship and connect and then just before church, he would just have instrumental music and he'd just say, come in and please just be quiet before God. Sit down, revere who you're going to be spending time with. We're going to be spending time before God, our maker. Let's have our hearts ready for worship. We go as a worship team into a separate room every week. We pray. We talk about what's going to happen often. We try to figure out if we're going to do it right or wrong. But every time we end in prayer, because this is all about God, the glory of God. What we prioritize and value, we do. For example, if you want to be at a sporting event or a concert or a Christmas play, which we just went to a beautiful one, what do we do? We show up in advance, we get our seat, perhaps we get our food. Hopefully you don't have food right now, maybe. But we get there early. We get assembled to, to, to participate. Worshiping God should be even more exciting than these events. We're praising our maker, our sustainer. We're worshiping our redeemer. What other 90 minutes in your week is more important than this? I'm speaking to you, but I'm really speaking to myself. 
this is critical that we show up to worship God and our hearts are ready. This is the most important time, the assembly of the saints, the worship of God. Let's prioritize this, not just this Christmas season, but as a church. Prayerfully consider and apply how we as believers are to approach our Lord, his holy word, and I'm going to add a critical word. Joyfully follow Jesus' two prescribed ordinances. What are the only ordinances Jesus leaves to us? Go into all the nations and baptize and make believers, right? In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. And commemorate the Lord's Supper regularly in the observation of communion as believers until the precious Savior comes again. This ordinance, this rite, this commemorative event is a celebratory that we don't have to go to a temple anymore sacrificially, killing animals. But our Lord has come down and sacrificed himself for us. And on the night that he was to be betrayed in the upper room, he said, do this in remembrance of me. He is the new temple. And where does the new temple exist for believers? In the life of a believer, by the dwelling of the Spirit of God. I go so that I may send the Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. Isn't it beautiful? Today, we're going to change up communion. I'm going to have Jeremy come. I know it's confusing. I'm sorry for that. Communion used to be before service. Why did we move it to after? As a response to God's word. That's why. Why are we coming to the table differently today? Because I want, as you come forward, to remember and proclaim with each step you come. With one step, you remember what Jesus has done. And the ushers will walk you through all the logistics, and Jeremy will set this all up for you. With one step, remember what Jesus has done in your place. And with the other step, this is a proclamation that we do again and again until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what an honor, what a privilege it is to commemorate and to celebrate what your son has done for us in our place. May we be zealous in our worship for you. May we have a reverence for you as a holy, holy, holy God. And may we, by the work of your spirit, look more like your son day by day, intentionally by storing up the word, by applying your word, and by boldly proclaiming your word to those that need it in a lost.